CC Growth Journeys from Emerging Ecosystems to Global Markets. And then as a result, you when you create an impact on an organization and you do it again and again, you're shrinking your sales cycle and your revenue increases. And that's how you start seeing your compounding month over month growth rate, typically 20 to 40% growth MRR month over month. And that's where you start seeing your hockey stick growth. Artem's fund, SaaS Growth Ventures, has a different thesis than most of the other SaaS focused funds. Artem invests into capital efficient SaaS businesses that prove product market fit yet lack momentum and hyper growth. They then work closely with the founders and accelerate their sales velocity by 2x. How they do that? It's all about the metrics and building a rapid experimentation process. In this episode, we'll talk about SaaS metrics and how Artem plays around with different business levers in hopes of reaching hockey stick growth. This was fun and very insightful. Hello Artem, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. How's the Bay Area doing? Uh, Bay Area is doing great, doing fine. We're still in more plus and minus, keeping the distance, uh, wearing masks, trying not to go outside unless it's necessary. <laughs> so we're trying to protect ourselves and the families. Yeah, compared to the rest of the country, I think, I mean, Bay Area is doing pretty well. At least life is slowly getting back to normal. People are going out, people are taking food from outside. I guess restaurants are opening now for deliveries and also too. Um, you can just go and order and then take it to your house, right? Correct. For the most part, pickup, very available, but dining in is uh, prohibited. Dining out, there is some tables available, but people being very cautious mm. about that. Uh, but people just like to go outside, uh, jog, run, bike, doing any like sport activities is allowed to do, which is most people want to enjoy at least while there's a sun. Mm-hmm. That's better than going and dining out anyway. So, I mean, maybe this pushes me people to do more activity outside. I want this episode to be more on SaaS metrics and different growth mechanisms than your personal background. But for our audience to get to know you better, can you please tell us a bit about your background before starting SaaS Growth Ventures? Well, absolutely. So I've been a founder. I founded four companies, four venture-backed companies, two of them which were acquired, one by a public trade company, another one private equity group. After my last company, I transitioned and became a former partner and AR at Upshift Partners, as well as I uh, did a lot of great work for 500 Startup, where primarily my superpower is to scale sales and revenue for, I've done this over 50 portfolio companies, review over thousands of investments. So I've transitioned from being an entrepreneur and became an investor. The reason was primarily because it, because of my superpower is to impact one thing that matters the most for the SaaS companies is the revenue. As the revenue results increases, uh, your valuation increases and help more founders to grow faster is primarily my dedication, my commitment. Besides of uh, doing investments, I also host first and only SaaS talk show. It's a video channel that I talk about Silicon Valley secrets of rapid growth and revenue for B2B SaaS companies. I've seen it on LinkedIn a couple of times, by the way, amazing content. Um, kudos for that. And SaaS Growth Ventures has a different thesis than most of the other B2B focused funds. You want to invest in capital efficient SaaS businesses that lack momentum. These are companies that go to about a million dollars annual revenue, but grow less than 50% year over year. Can you please tell us about what is unique in SaaS Growth Ventures premise? 
That's a great question. I think that's one sentence if I uh, elaborate what the fund focus on. We simply fuel revenue and growth for SaaS companies. So SaaS Growth Ventures is a, it's a venture fund, but with a private equity operational approach to scale revenue and sales for SaaS companies. So we simply invest only in companies that we can confidently can increase and impact their revenue and as a result, increase their valuation. And our narrative is pretty simple. Most founders know how to build products. There's a lot of engineers and product folks and they have some traction. They make money, but they cannot build scalable revenue past their initial success. Secondary, most venture funds leverage, you know, let's call it uh, invest in 100 companies, hope for the best one third will perform and return the fund. As a result, they miss or overlook companies that are not growing fast enough, right? Because they invest in something that's already established, founders figure it out and it's growing and the way the risk is mitigated. And of course, there are pre-seed stage investors who invest in ideas. It's all fine. But we focus on companies that have initial momentum. Now they need to accelerate rapid growth and get them basically from their, let's say, half a million dollars to $3 million within a matter of two years and get them to $5 million within total five years maximum. Interesting. I feel like what makes a SaaS company a high potential startup or a lifestyle business is its sales velocity. And for companies to continue to grow two or three X year over year after reaching about a million dollar in ARR, they have to be able to track their metrics and give well-informed decisions to play with the levers of the business. Um, let's say I'm a SaaS company CEO and we reached 50K in monthly revenue without any deep know-how on how to track and manage our metrics. What are the first few metrics that I should start tracking immediately? That's a good question. So there's so many numbers that you should pay attention to, right? But at the end of the day, it all comes down to a sales velocity. So sales velocity is the most critical metric for measuring the health of the startup. And sales velocity is determined by simply by analyzing amount of opportunities, your deal sizes, how much you're charging your customer, uh, your win rate, at which rate you're closing the customer, and the length of your sales cycle, right? So when you improve those four variables or factors, you will improve your sales velocity, increase the revenue. And that is the secret revenue formula for success. Improving those four factors simply by 10%, you will increase your revenue 47% month over month. Now, you might say, well, it's great, but how do I do it? So I kind of give you an example of how the formula works. So let's say you have a business and your business produces, let's say, 50 opportunities a month. And on average, let's estimate your close or your win rate is 25%, which means that 25% of your sales qualify leads convert into paying customers. And eventually they give you the credit card, maybe they sign the contract. So that is your win rate. Now let's consider that your average deal size so, uh, that you are selling your solution for, let's assume it's $10,000. So let's say your sales cycle lasts 60 days from the moment you initially start talking with an individual organization to the point of time that they give you the money by signing the contract or providing you with a credit card. So the formula is pretty simple. Sales velocity is determined when we take your 50 opportunities, it's multiplied by $10,000, which is your price point. Then we multiply this by your win rate or 0.25, let's assume that's your close rate and divide by 60 days of your sales duration. If you run the math, it comes down to roughly $2,083, which tells you that is your sales velocity, meaning that amount of dollars you generate every single day. Now imagine if any of those four variables you improve by 10%, and if you do the math on that yourself with your formula as a founder, you will see that you will grow your revenue by simply 47%. That's it. You can think of it many, many variables, but you're really controlling your those inputs. As a result, they drive your outcomes, which is your revenue. So the fact is increasing your MQLs and opportunities simply by 10% will help you to drive that. 
You also need to increase your or optimize your deal size to make it more either raise the prices at least by 10% and improve your sales conversion. Now, that's how you present the value better to your customers so they can understand and therefore how efficiently you're able to close them. And then as a result, you when you create an impact on an organization and you do it again and again, you're shrinking your sales cycle and your revenue increases. And that's how you start seeing your compounding month-over-month growth rate, typically 20 to 40% growth MRR month-over-month. And that's where you start seeing your hockey stick growth. Mm-hmm. Hockey stick growth. Um, you said pricing a couple of times there. I feel like SaaS companies always get their pricing wrong. Um, sometimes they're even pricing the product one-tenth of what it should be. What's a good way to find the ideal pricing for your product? I think a good rule of thumb um, that we always tell to our portfolio companies is that your customers should feel like the product is a bit too expensive, but they buy it anyways. Is that correct? I would agree with the point that always raise the prices and charge more. But how do you justify this? At the end of the day, the question is, it's a number that you decide, right? And there are several ways to determine your pricing. And at the end of the day, let's take a look at what the value is. And the value, there's a formula for it. Quality multiplied by service divided by time multiplied by speed. Uh, You can focus on uh, being the cheapest vendor on the market. However, as you probably know, you want to be cheap or cost efficient, in other words, I call it. Uh, You have to have a super, super high frequency. Example of that would be when you're selling, let's say, website design and people are already familiar and they want a different solution because everyone else is charging more. And then there's a natural mass adoption or demand in the market that exists which is they're already aware of the product and they're just looking for a cheaper solution where the market has been underserved. That works fine, but you have to have horizontal scale to achieve that. And not every vertical industry have that, meaning there's not enough adoption there, natural human adoption. So when you price the product, you have to price another way is by service or quality. And to price the service or quality, you have to demonstrate how much value do you generate to the customer. The value, so if I come to you and I say, would you like to make a million dollars? Most customers will say yes. And if I tell you, well, my offering is, and I demonstrate to you how I help you to make that money, and I tell my offering is $100,000, would you buy it? So the point is, either you're going to help companies make money or you're going to save them money. Your job is to demonstrate ROI. And if you're demonstrating an ROI of a million dollars that company is going to make and you're charging them $10,000, well, here you go. You created a massive impact. But they might not say, well, I don't have a cash to pay well, I don't have a budget for it. When I help you make a million dollars, you will find that $100,000, $10,000, whatever the price is. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely. So same thing is here when you save people money. You're asking the question, how much time does it take them to do the exact same effort? So the formula is pretty simple. It's frequency of effort multiplied by time plus consequences. If it takes you to do, let's say, move the task or object from left to right, and you do this every single day, that's your frequency daily. You're doing it 20 times a month. Who is doing this? What's the cost of labor of that job? Let's say it's $10. Well, here you go. What's the consequence if you drop that, let's say, egg that you're moving from left to right? What is that? You're losing some effort. You're losing products. You're losing some whatever that is, right? So that is the cost of doing that service. Anything in business that you do today costs money. An employee doing the work, an employee producing outcomes, an employee has the risk. That is the cost. So if I bring you the solution that eliminates the time or de-risk the consequences, and I save you, let's say, $100,000 and my product worth $1,000, would you buy it? So the question is, if you create the value, more value you create, more money you can charge. 
And depending on how much money you charge, it really impacts a lot of things in the business, obviously, gross margins, payback period, unit economics, et cetera. And entrepreneurs face these numbers early on. I mean, once they price the product a couple of months down the road, they then start calculating how these key metrics look. And the question that I get the most is, what's an ideal gross margin? What's an ideal payback period? What's an ideal LTV over CAC? And depending on that ideal figures, should I change my pricing just to accommodate for that? Good question. So in initial stage, when I, when I mean initial, like pre-seed, seed, your job is to acquire, get the customer. Like, I know it's important to charge money, but get the customer. If, as soon as the customer see the value, the sooner they will pay you money. But if you're trying to negotiate, discuss, and go through all these headaches, you're creating risk. Therefore, you are increasing your sales duration. So I'll give you an example. If I come to you and let's say your sales cycle is uh, 60 days. And every day you do touch point with the prospect, you reach out, you follow up, you do the meetings, you do all those efforts, or you send an email. There is a cost of your effort. Would you agree? Of course. And every single day, the cost is increasing. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. So you're actually costing you more money. So as a result, you have to charge more. But what about if I come to the customer and say, I will give you $2,000? Because still, I'm going to still spend that $2,000 for the next 30 days to try to acquire you. How about I give you $2,000 and pay me $1,000? I'll give you a sign-up bonus. At the end of the day, it's almost the same. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the point is, you have to demonstrate ROI to the customer. You have to focus on getting them faster seeing the value. So they will pay you later. Don't worry about it. They will pay you as long as the value is there. And yes, metrics are important, but they are more important than Series A when you start actually really dialed in on your economics um, payback period. So when it comes to payback period, the numbers are on a seed stage are typically around six to eight months. If it takes you more than six months to get the money back, then potentially you're going to face the problem of the churn. People are just not motivated. Maybe the value not strong enough. You will see some effect of it. So three to six months is ideal to me. As you grow the company to Series A and Series B, unfortunately, it starts to increase because you start hiring more people and you're spending more money on advertising and, and other efforts, sales efforts. So yes, payback goes up to like eight months to 12 months. The point is, get the customer, grow number of customers faster. That is the primary priority. The payback period, it should be within the six months. If it's eight, it's, it is what it is. As long as it's not exceeds 12 months, like that's kind of like a red zone. I mean, if it's 12 months or if it's like 15 months, um, then you have to do mini pivots. Either that's a marketing pivot, customer segment pivot, maybe value proposition pivot. You try to go deeper and we try to upsell to recover for that. But as a seed stage investor, and I think that's also similar for you, I mostly look into churn above everything else because it shows me the customer satisfaction level and whether or not the product is delivering what it's supposed to. I feel like any other metric like LTV over CAC, payback period, upsell percentage, etc., are just going to be wrong in the early stages anyway. They're going to change a lot. They change drastically over time as the company grows. Would you agree with that? I would agree with this for the most part. That's typically more applicable to Series A, right? At, at seed stage, you just simply haven't hit their 12. So as soon as they acquire a customer, they don't have 12 months history to say, yes, it will churn or not, right? So the churn rate, unfortunately, it's an early stage. They simply don't have it. Series A, yes, because there's 12 months. You can see the historical churn and determine what it is. For early stage, you don't have that factor, right? All I look for in that point is, how often does the customer register or logs in to your product and use it? Is it daily? Is it weekly? Is it hourly? The question is, how often? The frequencies typically determine how long they're gonna use the product. I'll give you an example. If we use the emails, we send in emails every single day, tens of emails, 100 emails. So more we use the solution, 
it's harder for us to abandon this because we start getting used to it. We get comfortable with, let's say, for example, Gmail, Outlook. It's very hard for us to switch to something else because it's a learning curve, right? So that will decrease the churn. Now, if the people log into your software once a month, you kind of know the answer to that question. There is a chance, high chance that they're going to churn because they forget about it. And then third question is who pays for it, right? Which department, which PL it comes from, right? So if it comes from, let's just say marketing, right? Typically people review their budgets every single year and then look and they determine, should we keep those 10 vendors or not? And they start chopping, you know, the budgets because they have new products that they want to buy. So they have to, and the budget's typically the same, or maybe it's a little bit higher. Guess what? You might end up being removed from that vendor selection list. But if your product is used by multiple people and people use it every single day, and remember, you're creating ROI or you're saving their money, why would they remove it? It's cost prohibited for them. So for the most part, products don't have enough values. So I call this, you got a toolbox or you have a solution for your customer. So which one are you? If you're a toolbox, yes, unfortunately, you have to rely on multiple segments. You have to rely on multiple customers. When you're a solution vendor, when you demonstrate, demonstrate ROI or you demonstrate cost savings, you know, they will keep you for the most part. So I look for user adoption, user behavior. Those are the signals for me to demonstrate. Is it really important for them to use your software and for how long? True that. I mean, churn is more like a lagging metric. If a customer churned, that's not an input, that's an output. The leading metrics are more in the product analytics and their retention, as you've correctly mentioned. So instead of looking for churn, investors should, or even entrepreneurs should look for usage patterns of their customers that because those are the leading metrics. We also look for gym membership rate. Um, so gym members are the customers that still pay. They haven't churned, but they just don't use the product. And if that's in an increasing trend, that's a problem. Yes, yes. Yes, team membership. I like that. Yeah. And some companies in our portfolio continue to grow by acquiring new customers, whereas others grow by mostly upselling. We even have one company, actually, a very large SaaS company that now operates in more than 20 countries. Um, they grow by launching new offices and expanding into new geographies. Do you focus on a certain type of growth? Well, it depends on the stage of the company. In early seed stage, you focus to acquire Sales velocity and network effect are two interconnected pieces. So network effect is all about you acquire a customer from one vertical, one segment. You build a case study and use case. And then you take that use case and you go to a lookalike customer and you present that use case to that second prospect and you demonstrate that you're showing them ROI or some sort of outcomes or maybe you save them money. That customer, the prospect becomes your customer. As a result, you're getting knowledge from that customer, either through their data or maybe their user behavior or whatever they do in it. Your algorithm, your system becomes better and smarter and much more equipped. And then you go to the third customer. You sell the same use case and you demonstrate what happened is you're creating network effect because you're establishing the trust and you're targeting the same lookalike customers. And the third, you're creating density. For your early stage startup, you just pick one vertical, one segment. When it comes to growth and scale, it's a replication, exact same thing, but you open up business offices in a different locations because you're trying to go for that audience in a different state, different country, whatever that is, but it's the same model. It's a network effect model. It's just an early, early stage. They're just targeting lookalike customers from one vertical, one segment, one region probably. And when, as they get bigger, they just open up different offices, but they're replicating the same model. It's a network effect model. Yeah, so 
instead of going up or going down or try to go horizontal and have more products, what you do is you just replicate the same sales playbook in different geographies. And that has been working successful for a lot of the, I would say, non-US companies, because in US, a lot of the verticals are deep enough. So before going outside the US companies become huge, they even become unicorns. But for SaaS companies in this part of the world, in places like Central Eastern Europe, Middle East, or Southeast Asia, they expand much faster because the markets are mostly shallow and limited. Exactly. And people buy from people that they know and trust, right? So it's very hard. Um, let's say if your business is located in the United States, you have some sort of market penetration here, and you're trying to sell in UK. Unfortunately, UK customers say, well, you're not, <laughs> you're not built for UK, right? They, they want to see a local presence. And they want to talk to the people. People buy from people and they build a relationship that way. There is no trust to buy, unless it's a consumer products. It's very hard to buy from someone who demonstrates ROI, locates in a different country. It's just like cultural barriers, time zone differences. Those are the typically the reasons why you have to have some sort of local presence there to establish that trust, establish some sort of footprint and repeat the network effect in that region. Just like Uber. Uber is an example of network effect. This is no much different. Correct. And a lot of the SaaS companies that I see, they find one channel that works really well for them. And with that one single channel, they can go up to Series A. After Series A, they have to try five, 10 different channels and tactics to find a new cost-effective channel. And it almost becomes like a spray and pray approach. At what point do you suggest companies to start burning capital in order to search for new sales channels? And how do you build that rapid experimentation process? Okay. So let me kind of break it down. For SaaS business, it's pretty simple. Uh, SaaS companies, there are four dominant sales channels. The first one is no touch or self-service channel where people onboard themselves. The second channel is inside sales. And the third is a field sales. And the fourth is partnerships. That's it, right? So if we look at all SaaS companies focuses on product-led growth, you can see that they're trying to leverage no touch approach through use of free trials, which works for the most companies. And if you look at the market overall, roughly 50% of companies use free trials of some sort. Premium products, unfortunately, haven't been very successful. And overall, only, unfortunately, 15% of all SaaS companies use the freemium models. So I would suggest don't focus on that, right? Now you get into three. So it works fine where you have a high volume of potential prospects for products such as maybe like web design, maybe some hosting, like domain purchases, people that are aware of. But I would not recommend leveraging freemium-based models. Overall, is what I'm seeing is 35% of SaaS companies use no-touch sales. In an early stage, they leverage free trials, they give something to the customer, customer use, and then they call them later on and they try to upsell them. That's kind of like a standard. I call this inbound or HubSpot model, right? So when it comes to inside sales, inside sales outperforms, I have to say, every single sales channel out there. Overall, companies leverage over 50% of their uh, customer acquisition through 20% inbound and 80% outbound efforts. That is means you want to grow faster, you have to go direct, which means using emails, phone, LinkedIn messages. Field sales, unfortunately, is dropping. Things are different before COVID-19, but unfortunately, now we're experiencing a drop in doing the field sales simply because there's no way to meet in person. So instead, everything got shifted towards direct sales. Now you see this field sales got transformed to Zoom calls, webinar course, things like that. And the last one, which is the partnerships, I have to say that most companies just never had a chance to make it work for both parties. So leveraging this channel hasn't been super lucrative for a lot of SaaS companies. For the most part, I would just suggest sticking to the partnerships maybe 20% of the time and putting the reminder of, remainder of your time and effort into inside sales. Focus going direct and then scale later on to outbound sales. Mm -hmm. And one question that I get from um, companies that go for a freemium approach um, or have an open source product is that 
should they put the cost of the free product into the monthly cost of goods sold, which would reduce their margins drastically? Or should they put that into as a sales and marketing cost, which would impact their customer acquisition cost, of course, and also payback period? It is a marketing cost. It's just you decide not to charge money for it, but it costing you to, for example, to have ads, right? The ads are marketing. Now, if you're doing content marketing, let's say blog posts, and you're creating content, that's still marketing efforts. If you have a salesperson reaching out and talking to the individual and actually have to give the product, that is part of the sales. If you're talking about support and managing those customers, those are the ones that you put in the OPEX because that, that's a support function. That doesn't matter if you're supporting a freemium or paid customer. It's just a support. But the question is, you're providing hands-on support for freemium users? It just doesn't make sense to me. Like it just costs prohibited. Why would you do that? Typically, you create FAQs, you create videos, you automate this as much as possible so it doesn't cost you anything. That's the main purpose. If you're acquiring a free user, and that's function of MQLs and opportunities, that it uh, directly relates to your marketing. You put this on the marketing and sales. I totally agree. I mean, I think freemium is just a marketing channel for you. And through that marketing channel, you qualify some of the leads to put it in your sales process. That becomes your top of the funnel. And then you try to convert. So it makes no sense to put it into cost of goods sold. But free users have the value. So the question is, why did you choose to give your product for free? For the most part, like if I have to use the freemium product, it's either typically I'm trying to penetrate the market much faster that's already established and everybody knows about it. And I'm just trying to give product away to get name recognition. But I have to gain something from my customers. So you have a free user, uses your product. What are you gaining from it? So typically it's designed to say, hey, well, we need data for our machine learning algorithm to understand better things prospect or customer is using. I get it. Or you're giving away the product, but in exchange, they're giving you, let's say, leads, right? They give you some Chrome extension, they use it for their Gmail, and you suck out, uh, extract all their, I don't know, <laughs> emails and people that they send. Like, for example. And then later on, you sell a paid subscription for contacts and database of your leads. Like, that would be the example where you need data, and you create a premium product to collect the data from your users, and then you sell that data to your premium customers. I get that. But if you're just trying to use this as a marketing channel to give away, still it doesn't gonna work. Why would you wanna do that? A thousand people register every day, then I'll say, yes, great. But if you're getting one person or two or 10, it's just not enough. Yeah, we had a lot of companies in our portfolio that get a bunch of users through their premium product and then they have a really tough time selling because a lot of these are long tail individual users, especially in the business to developer space. And it's really tough to be able to price a product that you're giving for free, but I mean, it's still a good strategy for a lot of the companies um, that are trying to penetrate the market uh, even faster than they can. We've seen 15% of companies use freemiums. And again, it only works for the high volume of when you have a high volume potential prospects. And some SaaS companies are valued at 20 to 30x their revenue multiple, whereas others can go down to 5, 6x revenue multiple, which is more like 10, 15x EBITDA. What differentiates the two? And should SaaS entrepreneurs look into relevant public SaaS companies to determine their valuation potential? I think they should. Of course, everybody gets priced differently. In the early stage, <laughs> uh -huh. there's a, such a high valuation in a lot of those companies. The value, first one is margins, right? Yeah. It's what are your margins? If you look at the gross profit margins for public companies, especially for SaaS products and verticals, the medium is a 70, 72, 75% for public companies, right? 
80% of your subscription, your revenue comes from subscription and 20% comes from some sort of a upsell, maybe support, maybe other hands-on approach. The valuation is determined typically based on your MRR growth rate or year-over-year growth rate. It's a driver. So what that means is if the company is growing today at 200% year-over-year, assuming that's been historically growing at that rate, post-series A, then that rate still sustains. That's why they will price your company at 20 and 30x potentially, right? But if your company is growing at a lower rate, then the valuation will be determined. But it's a MRR or year-over-year growth rate that for the most part dictates. That's the first criteria. And the second one is, of course, your uh, margins, profits. And third, which vertical you're playing in. Meaning, if you acquire a customer today and you are growing 200%, the lifetime value of the customer is actually 4x, meaning they bought, let's say, 10 subscription. Tomorrow, they're going to, without doing any sales, they will buy additional 20 licenses. So naturally, because you're creating an impact and ROI in a company, they want to add more licenses to make more money. That means the revenue from existing customer will increase. So that's kind of like, if I look at those four variables, they help determine the valuation and multiple on this one. Again, seed companies just don't have a lot of those components. MRR growth rate, consistent and predictable, or year-over-year growth, not a lot of years. Margins are pretty stable. You can claim it's 70 80%. That's fine. And then your cost for acquisition and payback period. Those are like four major components. And I know that you guys have your own tech platform, sales playbook, and methodology to accelerate sales of your portfolio companies by almost 200%. Can you give some specific examples and case studies from SaaS Growth Ventures? Well, um, I don't want to mention the company names, obviously, for the disclosure purposes and the numbers. Sure. Typically, what uh, we I've done it, and I, I think you know some examples of those companies, specifically at 500 Startup, is the company got, I don't remember exactly the budget number that they got accepted. They were making, they're in SMB space. They were making roughly, I believe, $20,000. We build a playbook, set up the infrastructure and sales process. Revenue start going after three months, 60K of MRR that they got after six, eight months, growing 40% month over month. By the end of the year, they're able to get to the $1.5 million, still growing at about 30% MRR month over month, and they're just trying to expand and do their Series A. That's an example. Typically, it's like build the process, make sure the company has a strong value offering, you demonstrate the ROI or your cost savings, to have a sales engine and playbook working for one or two reps, once it's fully done, then you're just doing a ramp up, which meaning in salespeople to replicate exactly what done be done by two different reps. And, and then you just repeat that. And most of the VC funds look for momentum, whereas you look for companies that kind of lack momentum and you play that arbitrage game where you bring the momentum with you. Are there any other VC funds structured in a similar fashion? Uh, we are the first and only one actually that make an impact uh, with this private equity operational approach. So we don't invest in you know 100 companies. We simply don't have time. We're trying to support and make sure that 80% of portfolio succeeds. At least they succeed to the point they are cash flow positive, they generate the revenue, and they are growing. That is the primary goal. It's not to invest in 100 companies. It's to ensure that the existing companies grow or pivot them to a different model that will help them to sustain in the business. So yes, I agree with your point. Yeah, we look for companies that are growing, but not growing fast enough, have traction where a lot of VC overlook at this. And most importantly, founders have so much capital nowadays, but they are limited and lacking of ability to build rapid revenue growth. At the end of the day, if the company fixes these issues and have an engine of growth that's working for them, then it benefits everyone, the founders, all the investors, and everybody's happy. 
Yeah, it's not a product problem. It's not a product market fit problem. It's just a growth engine problem. And you're situated just to solve that. I think it makes a lot of sense. And I'm, it's an interesting model. I hope it works out pretty well. Let's jump to the three quick fire questions before we close. Let's say you're not allowed to work for a year and you can live anywhere you want. Which city would that be? I know that you're a big fan of the Bay Area, but please pick somewhere different. Well, I would probably visit and travel different areas, but I probably wouldn't leave Bay Area. I have to tell you that. Again, same reasons. People, just culture and people here is amazing. Hmm. Two, a lot of different microclimates. I bike, I do triathlons. I've done over 10 Ironmans. I do kiteboarding and I, I like skiing. It all comes here. I can do it all here. So if, if you have to, if you ask me to move to another place, well, sure, I might be able to do kiteboarding there, but I won't be able to do skiing there, right? I want to do all four and five sports in one area somewhere. So I do enjoy Hawaii. I do enjoy a lot. Plus, it's not far away. It's five hours to fly, plus five hours to drive to Tahoe where I can ski, right? So I kind of like an area to be where I'm surrounded by people, great people, entrepreneurs, uh, trends, innovations, and things like that. But also, I need to be able to have access to um, sport activities. Yeah. You have your reasons. I mean, they all make sense. The second question is, if you have to rename SaaS Growth Ventures, uh, what would you name it to? I'll keep it the same way. Can I? You, you can. I'll let you. <laughs> uh, it's just what we do. It's so simple. When we thought about the name, so many different funds come up with a different you know, cool names, but it's, you always have to explain it. You talk to the founder, you have to explain the name, and a lot of times people don't remember it, right? Or six months passes by, like, yeah, I kind of like remember the name, but not unless you're well-established brand. But if you're starting the fund, it's a, your first, second fund, people in that way, there's no brand recognition established. And at least SaaS Growth Visions dictates and says what we do. It's pretty simple, easy to remember. I got fortunate that domain was available. <laughs> yeah, it lays down your unique selling proposition uh, to entrepreneurs and to, of course, your investors. And the last question is, if you had to donate your net worth into one private company, and of course, the keyword here is donate, which company would that be? Are you asking for one company or many companies? One company, if you don't want to name one company, you can just give me a category. Um, it should be a category that you believe in the mission of, or you believe that the world will be impacted. I mean, people say education, tech, climate, etc. cetera. Uh, great. I think in my case, it will be cancer. Anything to do with cancer, uh, AIDS, so uh, many people die from that, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. uh, any particular company that you closely follow? There's several. Uh, again, I don't want to advertise that kind of promote any company. The legacy would be to donate and help or invest in an organization. It could be a for-profit or non-for-profit trying to solve the problem of cancer, for example. Well, Artem, thanks for joining the podcast. And if I see any company um, that's doing, say, close to a million dollars in annual revenue but lacks momentum, I'd love to shoot an email to you and potentially co-invest sometime in the future. Fantastic. Look forward to that. I got the chance to work together with Artem on a couple of our portfolio companies and the first thing he did was to put in mechanisms that will enable us better understand both product and sales and marketing metrics. I fell in love with their fund's business model and I truly believe that there are great SaaS products that hit a glass ceiling and need someone like Artem to get to the next level. If you want to meet Artem, just shoot me an email and I'll do the introduction. Cheers. To stay in the loop, go to our website, getcc.com, or follow us at getcc on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube.